prayer, and it is a time, an opportunity where we can make all our requests to our God, a time where we offer our needs to Him, the needs of our society, the needs of the church, the needs of our own households. This is a great time in any life of the church, a time to pray for one another. Let us go before the Lord in prayer. Our heavenly God, we thank You for the great Son that You sent to us, that by Him we would be children in Your sight and children that had the great opportunity to come before You. We, O oh Lord, lift up our own civil world around You. We think of our own federal government and the culture therein within our own country. We pray, O oh Lord, as we see injustice all around us, while we see wars and rumors of wars, while we see financial difficulties to the common man, we pray, O oh Lord, for our country. We pray, O oh Lord, for our world. We pray for prosperity. We pray, O oh Lord, for stability. We pray, O oh Lord, that our elected officials over us would govern in a manner that is reflective of your holy and immutable moral law. We pray, O oh Lord, that you would use those whom you've put over us commonly for the common good as it relates to stability, peace, and justice. May we see, O oh Lord, your moral law unfold within our own society, and thus we pray for revival there within it. We see, O oh Lord, the stress and the division in our own culture all around us, in our own homes, in our workplaces, in the public square. And, O oh Lord, we pray for amending. And we know, O Lord, that that mending comes by the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And so we pray, O Lord, for revival. We pray that by your grace, we would be a church that you've called us to be, submissive to the gospel, obedient to the Great Commission, zealous for the truth of Christ. And thus, O Lord, we pray for missions within our church. We think of the Stangheli family. We pray for them uh, this morning. We thank, O oh Lord, and we mourn with them as uh, they revealed just recently um, the death of a child in the womb and the difficulty therein. We pray, O oh Lord, that you would comfort this family now, that you would encourage their mission as it relates to bringing the gospel to the ends of the earth. We pray, O oh Lord, that you would bless them in their ministry, even in the midst of difficulty. As they sang psalms together, we pray, O oh Lord, that we can join them and sing songs as well. We also pray, O oh Lord, for the lost among us. We think of those lost within our own country. Think of those lost in, in the Americas, South America and North America, on this side of the world. There are millions, O oh Lord, who do not know your name. And so we pray, O oh Lord, that today you'd raise up uh, gospel preachers to bring the gospel throughout all of our land. As a day as today that we might be reminded of the resurrection more than any other day. So we might have greater attendance found on this day. We pray, O oh Lord, for those even within our own congregations. That we would have a great zeal for Christ. A love for the gospel. That is a great witness to our friends, families, to those in our communities and beyond. We pray, O oh Lord, for the lost. Soften the hearts of those who reject you today. 
that their hearts might not be hardened tomorrow and that they might receive the gospel and Christ himself. That today, if we hear his voice, that our hearts would not be hardened, but come gratefully to the throne of grace. Though we are all sinners, O Lord, we are reminded of your grace in the Christ himself. We also pray, O Lord, in this same idea for sanctification within our own body. O Lord, you have blessed this congregation with under-shepherding groups. And we pray, O Lord, that within those groups we would grow closer to one another as we grow closer to you. We pray, O Lord, for the elders that oversee these groups, that you would continue to invest grace and truth within their own lives, that they might be examples to all that are under them. And we pray, O Lord, that our groups, our, our community, our church, would grow closer to one another as they grow closer to you. May love abound within our sanctuary, within our church, that all might see the truth of Christ by our love. We also pray in this same manner for those who are in need. We think of Joanne Ostendorf as she'll have a procedure tomorrow. As they redo some of the work there, we pray, O oh Lord, for you to be with her, with her doctors. We pray that you would bolster her spirit and Dan's as well. We pray, O oh Lord, for a quick healing. We pray that the specialists that care for Joanne would have a perfect plan of attack and that this infection would go away and go away quickly. Encourage her as you've often done. And use the church here to be an encouragement to her as well. But be with all of us, O Lord. We all, O Lord, can suffer from various ailments. Some are absent because of sickness. Others have their spirits downcast in, a, in depression or melancholy. We pray, O Lord, for our congregation. That on this day, our spirits might be lifted up to the heavenly courts. That we would see Christ and we would joyfully revel in Him even when our own circumstances around us stew depression. Give us joy in Christ, even on this day as we pray in his name. Amen. I invite you to turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew. The Gospel of Matthew, chapter 28. <clears throat> We take a break from our, our typical study in Philippians this week to have a brief word in Matthew. Dr. Rayburn of Covenant Theological Seminary in its golden age, at least how I would describe it, would say to his preaching students, uh, this is before my time if you're wondering, would say to his preaching students, not to me, but to his students, that it is a great service to the church when you take times to preach on texts that everyone in the congregation is thinking about. And I believe this is probably one of those days. As you woke up this morning, Easter in the air, you thought of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I want to capitalize on those thoughts in Matthew 28. We'll be reading the first 10 verses of this chapter. Stand with me as we hear the reading of God's Word. <clears throat> 28.1 Now after the Sabbath... Toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, 
For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel of the Lord said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen as he said. Come see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell the disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshiped him. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee and there they will see me. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. You may be seated. It's hard to be joyful when we are afraid. It's hard to be joyful when we are afraid. It is of no secret to you, and I hope you forgive me of this, but it is no secret that I am not a dog person. I am not a dog person. It's an unpopular opinion, I know, in any congregation that I serve. I will receive the chastisement from the congregation hereafter. But my fear originates in my childhood. You see, when I was but a boy in elementary school, as I ate my chicken nuggets at at my dinner table, my golden retriever would nip at my toes wanting my nuggets. And ever since then, I've never liked dogs. I would go on to be a skateboarder, and more times than not, dogs would jump over the fence seeing exciting prey and would seek to chase me down. I am not a dog person I want nothing to do with dogs, and to my wife's own chagrin here, she is probably lamenting that fact. Unfortunately, even more unfortunate than my distaste or dislike or even fear, irrational as it is of dogs, I have passed that on to my own children. Just a month ago, we had uh, it play out quite vividly in our own yard. We have a sprawling couple of acres that are very hilly, and I was working on the deck trying to repair some rotted wood underneath and my mom had been visiting. And my mom thought it would be a great day since it's nice enough for Scott to work on the deck to take a walk on the property. And so she descended upon the steep hills, the rolling hills of my home to the bottom. And I remember as I laid there, as I I was working and bolstering my deck so that my children wouldn't fall through, I heard shrieks from the bottom of the hill. And I wondered, both of my boys shrieking at the bottom, though, I wondered what had caused it. I thought perhaps our littlest, our smallest had fallen and rolled down the hill. That seemed logical to me. They shrieked and shrieked. But as it became known, as my mom limped up the hill with one child in her arm and the other clinging to life upon her leg, I knew what had happened. You see, the oldest decided to use the youngest as cannon fodder and pushed him down that he might himself survive. There is a dog at the bottom of that hill. 
You see, there, we have a dog that's a neighbor, and that neighbor, the, the invisible fence just slightly eases into our acreage. And my mom had no idea. And that dog made my children shriek in terror. They were not joyful. My mom wasn't joyful as she limped up the hill with a child on her leg and the other carried as a football. It's hard to find joy in fear. It's hard to be joyful when we are afraid. But in this passage today, we see a recurrence of fear and joy, a fear that is overcome by joy. We know that in this text, in the preceding text here, that three days prior, Jesus hung on a cross and he would say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He would draw his final breath and go to the grave. The earth shook at his death. The curtain of the temple torn in two. It was a traumatic experience for the disciples, the mother of Christ, and the women, even in this text that we read here today. A sad day. Jesus' body would have been wrapped in linen. He would have been put in the tomb, and it would have been sealed because the next day after Christ's death was the Sabbath. You see, it would have been typical for the women that had witnessed the death of Christ to go on mourning and to anoint his body the day after his death, but they couldn't. It was the Jewish Sabbath, and so they wait for this day, today, to go to the tomb in order to care for the body of Christ. They sought to anoint it with oil that its decomposition might slow, that the tomb itself might be filled with a fragrance. The women, as you know it, as we read the chapter here, have an earthly mind. Did they hear the lessons taught by their Christ? They are devoted, no doubt. Devoted enough to go to his tomb and to anoint his body with oil. But what they expected as they arrived was a decaying corpse that was the Christ. But they find something different. They fail to remember that Christ said, I will rise again. We live in a world today that has the same sorts of problem as the women of this text. We misunderstand the gospel. We misunderstand why Christ has come. Was he a good teacher? Was there a fake resurrection where the disciples came and commandeered the body and took it away? Is he merely a moral example? Is he an activist? What was the purpose of Christ's coming? If we misunderstand the Gospels and the teaching of Christ, we can be like these women, going to a tomb and expecting a dead corpse. We can be like these women, failing to understand why Christ has truly come. It's not just the women, though. We can't be too hard on them. The disciples went back to their ordinary work lives. They expected a dead Christ to stay dead. But in this passage, there is a confrontation. The people that come to the tomb are confronted with the resurrection, and that confrontation leads to both fear and joy. Fear and trembling, but a fear and trembling that for some leads to joy. When we are confronted by the uh, resurrection, our fear can turn to joy. When we are confronted by the resurrection, our fear can turn to joy. We see in this this passage that as it unfolds, as it begins, that we might fear the revelation. We might fear the coming of the angel. In verse 2, behold, 
there was a great earthquake, and the angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. There's apocalyptic language. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing was white as snow, language that comes straight from Daniel as it relates to the Lord coming again. It's a scary revelation. Mary Magdalene and the Mary, the mother of James, are on their way for an ordinary day of mourning. And yet they are met with an exciting and terrifying experience. It probably wasn't merely Mary and Mary. There were probably a group of women, as it would be, that would gather together early in the morning and make pilgrimage to the tomb in order to mourn the death of their Savior, to see Him one more time, to anoint His body to weep and cry together. I would assume as they, as they gathered and walked towards the tomb this morning, there were, it was a somber experience, a sad experience. They would have probably and likely reminisced of their greatest experiences with Jesus Christ with tears in their eyes. They would have seen the tragedy of His death. It would have been in some ways somewhat a normal day. A normal, sad day. In the ancient world, uh, we may have condensed our ability to mourn with maybe a day or a day and a half, but they would mourn for a whole week. And this was the beginning of that mourning process, the burial, the anointing. They would gather likely daily after this event to mourn the death of their Savior. There was a day of tragedy. Hindsight's twenty twenty. I imagine that if any of you would take yourselves back 2,000 years, you'd say, I wouldn't have done it. I would have known better. I wouldn't have been like the disciples or these couple of Marys and their other women with them. I would have known he would raise again. But I think hindsight is 2020 here. We would have mourned. We would have seen his dead body and we would have thought it is not what we thought it would be. We would have gone to the tomb, maybe not that day with those women, but probably another day to think of the life and work of Christ. But as these women gathered and got closer to the tomb, the whole earth shook. It shook around them. I have never experienced an act of God. I, I mean, a tornado or hurricane and an earthquake. I, I tend to minimize the threat. But in Yazoo City, uh, where I was an intern, they, their whole town was leveled by a tornado in 2012, I believe. And, and so those people had come face to face with an act of God, with a tornado. And whenever it would rain, because of this experience, they would text me and say, our events at the church canceled. Whether it's a light rain or a heavy rain, are the events at the church, it might get bad. You see, acts of God, tornadoes, hurricanes, earthquakes, they change a man. They change you. You see your whole house decimated, turned into a wind tunnel, and everything shoots through. That changes you. So you hide and try to protect your family. It's a scary experience that the, that the women here are experiencing. An earthquake a shattering of the ground that is around them. But what causes the earthquake in this passage? An act of God is one thing, but what causes the earthquake? 
If you look down, it's quite simply revealed that it is an angel descending that causes the earthquake. How much scarier is that? An act of God, yes. But how much scarier is an act of God when you know that Godzilla is, is what causing that great act of God? They come face to face with an angel that causes the ground to quake before them. It is terrifying. An angel of the Lord clothed in white with the appearance of lightning. It leads the guards to be petrified. They, they, they are frozen. They are fearful to the point of fainting because of the sight that is before them. And these weren't mere normal guards. These are centurions. These are rock-hard warriors. They were sent to the tomb in order to protect the tomb from invaders, those who would seek to take the body of Christ. They would not move because if they did, they would die. They had one job and one alone, and if they failed, their necks were on the line. These were great guards. They weren't pastors. They weren't everyday folk. They were strong and courageous men. And at the sight of the angel condescending, they are petrified. They are petrified. In my nerdy board games, petrification is being frozen in stone. You cannot move. You fall over, unable to speak, frozen. And why were they frozen, though? Probably, yes, it is a scary experience. But if you look back in the chapter that we didn't read, the guards are sent to the tomb, and quite ironically, they seem to know the gospel of Christ at least a little more intimately than the women here, that they are sent by Pilate to the tomb in order to protect it from imposters, of those who would seek to take the Christ and pretend that he was resurrected. They knew the story. They knew that when Christ died, he promised to be raised again on the third day. And because they knew that, they sent those guards in order to protect the tomb. They knew what perhaps even the women in this passage failed to re recollect at this time. It's a great irony. And so why they are petrified, why they are frozen, why they faint is because it was true. Their mission in regards to protect the tomb from someone robbing it, they are coming to the realization what Christ had said is true. It's true, and they are fearful for their lives. Whether they die at the hand of Pilate or not, they know that what they have been taught by Pilate to them and their mission would reveal that Christ was right. He would be raised from the dead, and they are petrified by such an experience. The revelation... The condescension of an angel is a scary event. Is a scary event for those who do not know the Lord Jesus Christ. But as we'll see in the following verses and in our next point, that though it is a trembling event for all, that trembling turns to joy for some. It is a scary event. The revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ, the coming down of the angel is a scary event. An event that reminds us of the power and work of God himself it is by God's power that the earth quakes with the messenger of 
an angel, for those guards, for those who stood in rejection of God and His work. It was a scary day. It was scary not only because of the event, but also because of the message, the revelation that was coming to them. The earth quaked, and so did their whole bodies as they feared the judgment of God before them. When we are confronted by the resurrection, our fear can turn to joy, but it does not turn to joy for all. For some, for the guards, for those centurions, it leaves them in a state of complete paralysis. It's a scary event, but it is not so for everyone. Because in verse 5 and 7, we see that we might joyfully fear the mission. You see, it doesn't stop with the angels that have received that good, uh, that, that have given that good news by their presence. We see that the women themselves receive that good news. In verse 5, But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen as he said. Come, see the place where he lays. The angel knew why they were there. It was to their own chagrin. You might read this text and you see, do not be afraid. It might just be a, a statement, maybe a calming statement, and perhaps it was. But if you literally tra- translate that, it, it says, stop being afraid. Stop being afraid. It's a command. Stop being afraid. But don't read it how I just said it. <laughs> you might read it like Bob Newhart telling someone in a counseling session to just stop it. But that's not, it's a merciful, veiled rebuke. They know better. It's a gentle admonition, a loving reminder. He's not here. You should know that. It's a, it's a, it's a kind and, and gentle but firm rebuke of the women who'd gathered. They expected a crucified corpse, and yet they should have known better that he was not there. They should have known better. But according to God's grace, in verse 27, we see that the angel doesn't just tell them to turn away now and go. As he sits on that rolled away tomb, the, the, the massive rock probably fallen over, him sitting on it, I imagine with his legs crossed for some reason, sitting on it jovially, he says, come on in. You can see the truth of what is here. Come on in and look at the empty tomb. Look at the cloth nicely folded. Look, there's no rancid smell in this tomb. There is no decaying body here. It smells like it smelled the day before Christ had been buried in. It was a normal, empty tomb meant to give confirmation to those women, but also all that would come. Again, this is a seven-day event. Women and men, the disciples, likely to come regularly to that tomb. And in a place where they expected heavy security, they would find none. And in a place where they expected a closed tomb, they would find it open. You see, the tomb wasn't rolled away for Jesus to escape. The angel didn't come down in order to roll away the door so that Jesus can triumphantly walk out the door. If you, if you look at all the pictures of Jesus exiting the tomb, you see that the tomb is open. But in John chapter 20, we see that 
Jesus doesn't care about metaphysics at this point. He doesn't care about earthly sciences. In John 20, he walks through the locked door. He walks through the closed tomb. The door is rolled away, not for Jesus, but for you, for me, for the disciples. Come look and see. See for yourselves that the Christ whom you should know better is not here. It is triumphant. It is, yes, terrifying, but it is also joyful because as they see the empty tomb, they are reminded of the mission of Christ. They are reminded of his work and of his commission to them. They are reminded of what he came truly for. They become unlikely witnesses. They are truly unlikely witnesses. Women are very unlikely witnesses in the ancient world. We live in a broadly egalitarian society where we see very little distinction between men and women, for better and worse. But here in the ancient world, you would not have women be your witnesses. Actually, in a legal sense, women couldn't be witnesses. You didn't call women to be a witness in a trial. And if you're trying to verify the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, it is somewhat silly that women would be the ones to deliver that message. It would be mind-boggling. It would be mind-boggling. It's all around. Because they would carry no weight. Again, I'm not making a moral judgment here. I'm just stating the fact. It would have been backwards. It would have been as backwards as Jesus allowing women to sit at his feet as he taught them, as rabbi. It was only a man that would sit at his feet, at least in the ancient Jewish tradition, but not for Jesus. He, he usurps what is expected. Women sit at his feet and women bring the message to the disciples themselves. You'd expect it to be the other way, that the disciples would be the ones to receive this message and then they would bring it to Mary and Mary and the other women. But no, here we have the women of the Lord recognizing their own folly, and now, quite ironically, they have to go back to the disciples and reveal their folly, their failure to understand his work. But why Galilee? That seems somewhat difficult. They're near the greater Jerusalem area like we are in the near St. Louis area. Why why would we have to travel up to Sparta or down to Sparta or up to Carbondale or something? Why would we leave? Why, why, why all the way over there? Why not where we are? Well, Galilee is a place, is a unique place in the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is a place where the disciples themselves are trained. It's a place where they start and perhaps now Jesus ends his ministry. But it is also a place that is kind of revelatory to the hearts of the disciples themselves. It is a place of rejection, but also acceptance. Of hardship, but also of joy. Of unbelief, but also of faith. It is a mixed place. A place that perhaps the the Jewish disciples of Christ could empathize with at this moment. The Christ that they once loved, they had now abandoned. They've gone back to their normal lives. Galilee is symbolic. It's a place where Jesus ends his ministry, but also gives them commission to continue his ministry. Matthew 28, 19, you all know it. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We have the great commission. The women beginning that commission by revealing to the disciples of their call before God to meet in Galilee. 
We sometimes take the Great Commission, 2819, isolated from everything else, but 2819 of Matthew is done in light of the resurrection. Without the resurrection, 2819 means nothing, as we've heard in, in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. The Great Commission needs its context. It needs the context of the resurrection. And just imagine the, the apostles, the disciples, as they gathered in Galilee. Imagine the whiplash. They believed their Savior dead, dead for good. Now he is alive. That experience, as maybe traumatic as the earthquake that the women had experienced, it would have made them reevaluate everything that they had learned from Christ. It's kind of like those movies, that, uh, the mystery movie. I love mysteries. And, and when you watch them, usually at the end, it helps you reinterpret everything that comes before. Good example, whether you love it or hate it, Interstellar. As fantastical as that end of that movie is, uh, you learn the context for by which everything that preceded it happened. It makes no sense to me, but that doesn't matter. Now I understand what doesn't make sense. That's what happens to the disciples. They are re-watching now all of the teaching that the Lord Jesus had taught them and they are interpreting it with new eyes and they are probably thinking it's somewhat comical of how they misunderstood the, the, the work of Christ when they said, well, I be at your left and right hand. Now they are laughing to themselves. Oh, this isn't an earthly insurrection. This is greater than that. When Mary asks, which of us can you exalt my sons? It's, it's now comical. We have misunderstood his ministry, and now we have the opportunity to reevaluate all that Christ has taught us. And in that reevaluation, we get Matthew 28, 19. Now that you've reevaluated, now that you know, now that you truly understand, go to the ends of the earth, making believers from every nation, starting here in Galilee, in a place that is so mixed spiritually, and then go to the ends of the earth. The Great Commission, the Resurrection, Wedded together changes everything, and it is fearfully joyful. We have a fearfully joyful mission. We are fearful because we know the consequences of such a mission. The disciples themselves, none would survive. They would all die and perish because of the mission. It's fearful. It is not an easy mission, a difficult mission. In our own context, there are consequences to such a mission, within our own homes, within our workplaces, within culture and society. It is a mission that brings both joy and fear. We see that joy and fear in the women themselves as they receive the gospel from Christ and as they are told to go on. It is a joyfully fearful mission. But we notice in the last place that we will joy, be joyful in Christ and we see that the joy of Christ overcomes the fear that we might have. Verse 8. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell the disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. You see how the women respond. They, they fearfully and joyfully go out. But notice which is the superlative. It is great joy. Though they tremble with fear, there is great joy as they ran to tell the disciples. But as they ran to tell the disciples, first they met Jesus himself on the way. Another example of grace from Christ. He didn't have to appear. But look at how ordinary it is. Greetings. What's up? 
I'm sure that's the last thing the women would have expected from such an extraordinary event. Hey, how are you doing? It would have thrown me off as well as probably them. They respond and arrive in worship. They take hold of his feet in a, a completely submissive posture, touching the least part of their Savior, the most insignificant part, the lowliest part, the part that was full of muck and grime and dirt. They grab hold of his feet and they worship. It's to show complete submissiveness, probably even many regards repentance for not understanding what Christ had said. Instead of seeking to anoint his dead body, they should have understood the mission. They're probably repenting and worshiping. We are sorry. We are sorry that we missed your trial. We are sorry that we didn't come to your own crucifixion. We are sorry that it wasn't our tomb that you were buried. We are sorry for abandoning you and pure worship coming therein. But notice in verse 10, it's the most intriguing verse of this entire passage to me. And Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid, and go tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. It seems run-of-the-mill. Jesus reaffirms what the angel had already affirmed to the women again. It's probably jarring for women to see someone who they knew had died, now yet alive, and they're out in front of them. But that's not what's striking. What's striking to me in verse 10 is the command of Christ to the women as they would gather to go to Galilee. And is go and tell my brothers. Go and tell my brothers. There's the familial relation. It is subtle if, if, you, if you're... If you might miss it on the first read through. It is so subtle. But Jesus refers to the disciples as brothers. Perhaps these women as sisters. These are brothers and sisters that scattered after his indictment. These are brothers and sisters who would abandon him in his moment of need. These are brothers and sisters who aren't acting as brothers and sisters. I, I know that if I were in in the Lord's shoes, I don't imagine such a case, I would have many other words to describe these people. Not brothers, not sisters. I would think traitors, scoundrels, cowards, weaklings. I would have judgment. But notice the temperament of Christ. Go tell my brothers despite all that they did or their lack of, Christ still counts them as brothers. I find it so striking. Sure, these women had opportunity to confess and to worship. You think that such a breaking from Jesus would lead him to casting his own disciples out. You didn't believe everything I taught you. You didn't believe but instead of waiting for their own repentance, instead of be waiting to become face-to-face -face with their Savior to give them the opportunity, he already calls them brothers. It shows the great discretion that the Lord has for his people. Brothers in the midst of their own rebellion. He knows how this will play out. How else could it play out if he appears before them? 
but he, there are, they are still brothers. It's a great example of how fear can be eclipsed by joy. It's a great example of the grace that is found within the Lord Jesus Christ, that the resurrection eclipses all of our fear, all of our trembling. It calls us all, like it calls these women, to grab hold of the feet of Christ. Even if before we were like those women going to that tomb, we expected to be filled. Not understanding like the guards, not understanding like the women. There is joy in the resurrection of Christ because we have the opportunity to grab hold of those feet. Those perhaps dirty feet to confess and to worship. It is a joyful experience, perhaps fearful, but overwhelmed with joy. Because when we are confronted with the gospel, we have that great opportunity for our fear to turn to joy. When my kids came up the hill, it was a fearful experience. But shortly after, those shrieks of terror from those dogs turned to whimpers. And before you knew it, as most kids bounced back quickly, they were running around the house. They side-eyed those windows to make sure those dogs weren't coming up again. But they returned to a state of joy. The resurrection, like our own home, turns a great and fearful experience into one that produces great joy. So we prayed earlier today, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart, but ask him, ask him to roll away the tomb for you so that you might see that it is empty, that he is gone, he is resurrected. Be not the guard, trembled and paralyzed in fear, but turn to Christ. Receive the revelation like the women. Fear, yes, but enjoy and come to his feet, cling hard to them, and bow in worship. Be not like the guard today, but all of us have been like him. All of us have been like that one, that, those women, not understanding the nature of the gospel, not understanding the work of Christ. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Let us close in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for a message such as this that though we know sin, he who knew no sin became sin for us. We offer all that we are to you, O Lord. Purify us as the angel revealed to those women the truth of the resurrection. May we understand all of the gospel in light of what has taken place here. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.